Thank you for that song. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, grab them and go with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter number 6 this morning. The book of Mark in chapter number 6. And man, we have been ministered to by way of song this morning. Ain't nobody like Jesus. And I hope, I hope you know that. And if you don't know that, I hope you come by the, by the end of this service, you'll come to know this to be true. Mark chapter number 6, what a privilege and an honor it is to be with you. Mark chapter number 6, and we're going to hang out in verse number 14. We're going to get down to verse number 30 in just a moment. But Mark chapter 6, verse number 14 to verse number 30. My prayer this morning is that as a result of God speaking to your heart through His Word, that you would come to make a decision. I'm going to ask you to make one particular decision this morning. And the decision is that we would be willing to do the right thing no matter what. That we would be willing to do the right thing no matter what. Now, most people don't have a hard time making the decision to do the right thing. I believe this to be true about you. I believe it to be true about most people. They're willing to do the right thing. The struggle is on the back half of that decision. That we would do the right thing no matter what. Do the right thing. No matter what. There's a very famous photograph. Perhaps you've seen it. It's a black and white photo. It's been taken from perhaps 1936 or maybe 1938, somewhere in between there. It shows hundreds of young men who appear to be dock workers of some sort, maybe, maybe day laborers. Whatever they are or whatever they do for their occupation, what is true is that in the photo they are giving a Heil Hitler Nazi salute. Except one man. You can see him in the photo, he's circled behind me. It's hundreds, perhaps thousands of young men that lined the street that day. And all of them did the same thing. Except one. And one man who is deliberately folding his arms, refusing to salute to Adolf Hitler. Years later, a woman came forward and said that the man in the photograph was, in fact, her father. The man is thought to believe, is thought to be a man by the name of August Landmesser. He was sentenced to a labor camp when it was discovered that he was engaged to a woman by the name of Irma Eckler. Irma Eckler herself was a Protestant by religion, but a Jew by nationality. And at that time in Germany, it was considered illegal to be married or engaged to a Jewish individual. And so he was sentenced to a labor camp and she was as well. Irma would die in a concentration camp. Landmesser, the, the man in the photograph who is defiantly folding his arms, refusing to give the Nazi salute, 
was eventually drafted into forced military service and then died in battle. Would you be willing to do the right thing no matter what? Do you ever feel like the man in the photo? Do you ever feel like the whole world is saluting something that you know to be wrong and untrue? Do you ever feel like everyone in your family or your friend group in your neighborhood is pledging allegiance to something that you know to be wrong? How do we survive as Christians in seasons like that or perhaps even in seasons like this? How do you survive and thrive as a Christian in the year 2021? What's your plan to ensure that your family survives and thrives? Do you have a plan? As a Christian, you ought to have a plan. The Bible teaches us in the New Testament that it's essential that as Christians we do both. We play offense and we play defense. There are some seasons in our life where we must be defensive. And there are other seasons in our life where we must be offensive. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 that you must not be taken captive by any ungodly philosophy or ideology. In, in other words, you must play defense. You must not allow yourself to be taken captive by the world's philosophy. You must not allow yourself to be taken captive by the lust of the flesh or the pride of life. You must not allow yourself to be taken captive. You must play defense. It, 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 the implication is if we must play defense and not allow ourselves to be taken captive, then there is something in this world that is trying to take us captive. That there is something against you. There's an enemy for your soul, for your heart, for your mind. There's an enemy against you and your family and your husband or your wife or your kids. That there's an enemy against this church and what it stands for. So we must not allow ourselves to be taken captive, Colossians 2. But that is not all the Bible tells us to do. The Bible doesn't say only play defense. The Bible also says we must play offense. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, and taking captive every thought. So in one sense, we must not allow ourselves to be taken captive, but in another sense, we must be taking captive every thought. So you need a plan by which you're going to attack him. You need a plan by which you're going to defeat the, 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 the philosophies of the day. You need a plan by which you're going to resist the own, your own lust of the flesh. You need a plan by which you're going to be killing sin or else it will be killing you, as the Puritans said. Our own sin, of course, is our biggest problem. If you were honest this morning, you'd have to say like I would have to say that my biggest problem in this life is not someone else as much as it is me. 
The most trouble that I find in my life isn't the result of some other set of circumstances. It's a result of my own sin, my own decision making. And in this way, we are all criminals. We like to think of ourselves as victims. The only reason I did this is because you did that. The only reason I thought that is because you said this. The only reason I said that is because those things over there. And yet that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not that we are primarily victims, but the message of the Bible is that we are primarily, primarily criminals. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if you do not have a plan to play offense and to play defense in this world, you make yourself an easy target. So how will we survive and thrive? How is it that we can ensure that we do the right thing no matter what? Mark gives us a comparison of two men. One man is thriving and one man is not. One man is surviving and one man is not. One man survives and thrives in this world and the other man does not. It's the contrast in this text between two men. A man by the name of John the Baptist and another of, by, by, a man by the name of Herod. So look at the text where Mark chapter number 6. Look with me in verse number 14. And King Herod heard of him. The him there is Jesus. So King Herod heard of Jesus. Now, how did he hear about Jesus? Well, he heard about Jesus because the disciples had gone all throughout the region preaching and proclaiming that the Messiah had come. And Jesus had commissioned them to go out and to tell others about him. And that's what was happening. And Jesus' teaching ministry and Jesus' miracle working ministry is booming. And Herod hears about him. For his name was spread abroad and he said... That John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. And others said that this is Elias or Elijah. And others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He's risen from the dead. Okay, so what happens in verse number 17 all the way to verse number 30 is it, is it goes back and it tells the account of how Herod had in fact beheaded John. So Herod hears about Jesus, says it's John coming back from the dead. And if you were watching this on a movie, it would go to a black screen right now and it would say five years earlier. And it would back up and it would tell you exactly now what happened. Why is it that Herod thinks John is back from the dead? So it says in verse, four, verse 17, For Herod himself had sent forth, laid hold upon John, bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother's Philip's wife, for he had married her. And John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a just and holy man, he observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and he heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, 
That Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords and high captains and chief estates of Galilee. And the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and all them that sat with him. And the king said unto the damsel, ask of me whatsoever thou wilt and I will give it thee. And he swear unto her. And whatsoever she shall ask of me, I will give thee unto half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, Herodias said, the head of John the Baptist. She came, she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou will give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry. He knew it wasn't the right thing to do. And yet for his oath's sake and for the sake of those and for, and for their sake, which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head be brought. The executioner went, beheaded John in prison. And he brought his head in a charger, gave it to the damsel. The damsel gave it to her mother. Would you do the right thing no matter what? And John in the text is the man who's thriving and surviving. And you may go, whoa, whoa, whoa Dave, hold on a second. Uh, it sounded like he just got beheaded. How can you say that he is the one thriving and surviving? So hopefully by the end of our time together this morning, you'll see, according to God's word, John is thriving and surviving. And Herod is the one who is losing. So how is it that John thrives and survives? And how is it then that Herod loses? Well, Herod loses in the very beginning of this text because he knows that he's culpable in concerning the death of John the Baptist. Herod is a man who is trying to manage his own sin. He's a man who knows he has disobeyed the law of God. He is a man who knows he has executed the man of God. He is a man who is given to all kinds of earthly appetites and fleshly desires. And Herod is losing this war because Herod is a man full of shame and guilt and regret and remorse. And Herod is full of those things because Herod is trying to bury his sin He's trying to hide it and he's hoping that the skeletons of his sin will never come back to life. But hear me on this. The skeletons of our sin always come back to haunt us. Now you can only run from your sin for a matter of time before the Bible says that your sin will find you out. That's exactly what happens in the text. His sin finds him out. I'm not so much interested in Herod. I'm really interested in John the Baptist, though. How is it that John was able to thrive and survive? Three things. First, notice, John lived for the glory of God. John lived for the glory of God. Herod, by way of contrast, is a man who only lived for his own glory. It, it, that is to say, he only lived for his own wants, his own desires. He did what he wanted, 
when he wanted, how he wanted, with whoever he wanted. And no one was going to tell him otherwise. And Herod is a man who pursued his own glory. He pursued his own desire. He pursued his own wants. And all he cared about was himself. And Herod is a man who was only caring about his, himself, only worried about his own desires. And that's what he lived for. It's evidenced in verse 17 and verse 18 of the text where Herod, the Bible says, had taken Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and had married her. So the, the problem with Herod and Herodias' marriage is that Herodias is in fact his sister-in-law. In the book of John, John tells us that she, she's also Herod's niece. Now that's some messed up West Virginia stuff right there. So not only is it weird, but it's a sin. And John calls him out on it. And John says, this disobeys the law of God. And as a result, Herod gets all mad, has John arrested and thrown in prison. Why? Because Herod is under the impression that there's nobody that can tell him what he can and can't do. Why? Because Herod lives for his own glory. Herod does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with whoever he wants. And that is a recipe for disaster. And Herod is a man who lives for his own glory. John is a man who lives for the glory of God. And John is a man who simply does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. But John is a man firmly, firmly planted on the word of God. Let me show you what I mean. John is a man who lives for the glory of God. Over and over in John's life, you see John always, always pointing people to Jesus. And John is a man who says about himself, I am a voice in the wilderness. That's all I am is a voice. And John is a man who says, I'm the, I'm the finger pointing. That's all I am. And I'm pointing to Jesus Christ. John says, I'm simply a light shining. That's it. And I'm trying to shine the light on the Lord Jesus Christ. In our vernacular today, John would say, I'm the, I'm the best man. That's all I am. I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. I'm just here to make sure that everybody sees him. And who is the hymn for John? The hymn is Jesus Christ. That's who the hymn is. There's one occasion where John is baptizing people in the river. Jesus appears on the mountain on the other side. And John says, behold, or look, or pay attention to the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And John is a man who makes much of Jesus. John lived for the glory of God. And John would go on to say, he, speaking of Jesus, he must increase. I must decrease. Herod lived with the exact opposite philosophy. Herod's philosophy was, I must increase and everybody else around me must decrease. How do we thrive and survive in 2021? Make much of Jesus. Live for the glory of God. Yes. Listen, friend, if Jesus is your everything, you can handle anything. And so it is with John that as Christians, we must be Christ-exalting Christians. We must live with the fear of the Lord more than we live with the fear of man. 
If God be for us, well then, who can be against us? I think we are in danger in our time of being submerged by the fear of man. The fear of man will silence our witness. The fear of man will submerge our holiness. The fear of man will sideline our godliness. There's so many Christians in the world who seem more interested in not offending the world than in not offending God. We must remember that the world that we are so interested in not offending is the world that put Jesus on the cross, put John's head on a platter, and put 11 of the 12 apostles in graves. There's a line of blood that stretches all throughout Christian history. We must live not with the fear of man, we must live with the fear of God. We must understand our life not as simply an exercise in self-glorification or self-gratification. We must understand our lives and all that we do in it as being spent and lived for the glory and the honor of God. And whatsoever you do, friend, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. You want to thrive and survive? Live for the glory of God. You want to do the right thing no matter what? Live for the glory of God. Second, you must live tough-minded. You must live tough-minded. Look at the verse, verse 17. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison. He put him in prison. Now, the only reason that doesn't immediately jump off the page to you is because you've probably never been in prison. They laid hold on John and they threw him in prison. Is it enough talk of this in the church today? It's kind of assumed that if we, if we follow Jesus, if we follow God, if we somehow navigate all the brokenness and difficulty in this life, then somehow we will get to where we really want to be in the end. It's this kind of Winnie the Pooh Christianity. We need to be tough-minded. We, we should not assume that we have signed up in following Jesus for everything in our lives to fall in some kind of nice or neat order. And John is tough-minded. We should be reminded that we are not, we, we, we are not, uh, we, we're vacationers here. This world is not our home. We're simply pilgrims passing through. We look for a city whose builder and maker is God. My, my address doesn't belong in Long Beach. My address belongs in heaven. My home ain't 1000 Pine Avenue. My home is in heaven. Your final place will not be liberal Kansas or wherever you may be from. Your final resting place, if you are a believer, is not here and now. It's then and there. And we must be reminded of that. We follow a warrior king with a warrior mission against a kingdom of darkness. 
And that involves being tough-minded. Where soldiers in his army were an army. And this is exactly the kind of mentality that got John in trouble. It was not John's personality that got him in trouble. It was John's preaching that got him in trouble. And John, don't get me wrong, John had an eccentric personality. He was an unusual man. He dressed in unusual ways. He exercised his ministry in an unusual place. The crowds went out to hear John as he would preach. But John's preaching was marked with humility and clarity and urgency and integrity. In fact, one occasion, the religious elite of the day came out to hear John preach. And John re replied to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. How's that for a Sunday morning sermon? You bunch of snakes. That's what he said. And John's tough-minded. Herod isn't. Herod isn't tough-minded. Seen in verse 21, Herod throws himself a birthday party. You'll notice that quite the group comes, all the rulers, all the lords. Insecure people always want all the attention. Here's Herod marked in his insecurity. Herod isn't tough-minded, he's insecure. Herod isn't tough-minded, he's weak-minded. Herod needs all the attention. So what do you get a person who has everything you could possibly want? Well, in verse 22, it tells us that Herodias, his wife, sends in Salome, her daughter. Verse 22, the text reads, When the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced, pleased Herod, and all them that sat with him, the king said of the damsel, Ask me whatsoever thou wilt, and I'll give it thee. You should understand the brevity of verse number 22 as covering a multitude of sin. All kinds of evil acts took place in verse 22. So Herod makes an agreement with Salome. Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. She goes and asks her mom, what should I, I ask for? She says, without hesitation, John's head. Well, why? Why does she want John's head? Well, verse 19, Herodias held a grudge against John. She was a woman scorned. And as a result, she wanted John killed. And the only thing that stopped her from killing him, the text says, was that Herod feared John and knew John to be a holy and a just man. He knew what the right thing to do was. He just didn't do it. But Herod feared the opinion of man more than God. He protected John as long as he could, but once his reputation was at stake for fear of them which sat at meat with him, the text says, he knew, he knew that he had to follow through on what she asked. Herod is weak-willed. He lacks tough-mindedness to do the right thing. Herod can't summon the courage to do the right thing no matter what. I told you at the beginning, I was asking to make one decision this morning. Would you do the right thing no matter what? Live for the glory of God. Live tough-minded. Third and last. Live word-saturated. You see, John's boldness, John's, John's integrity, John's tough-mindedness... It is not a part, it doesn't come on a part of his personality. Some people go, well, I'm just not the, I'm just not the confrontational type. Well, John's 
tough-mindedness doesn't come on a part of his straight, a part of his tough, a part of his personality. It comes on the part that his confidence is rooted in the Word of God. If things continue as they appear to be in our culture, then preaching the clear positions of this book right here will get you into trouble. Which is why we need to be drinking in God's Word. We need to be meditating on God's Word. We need to be hiding God's Word in our heart so that we might not sin against Him. And we need to be sure that we're firmly planted on the Word of God. There's never going to be a strong biblical Christian if there is not a strong commitment to the Scriptures. You don't accidentally... Become a strong biblical Christian. You intentionally become a strong biblical Christian by taking heed to the word of God. And John in Matthew chapter 11 is faced with doubts. We may talk a little bit about that tonight. If the Lord gives liberty there. But John is faced with these doubts about his calling. He's found himself in prison. He's there for a long time. He hears about Jesus. He believes Jesus to be the Messiah. But the Messiah is supposed to bring a kingdom and there's no kingdom. And so John takes two of his followers, sends them to find Jesus and says, Hey, are you the Messiah or not? You ever notice how Jesus answers questions in the Gospels? He never answers them straightforwardly. He always forces you to, to look deep in your heart, to question to, to allow the Spirit of God to lead you into the answer. And so Jesus could have simply said, yes, tell John yes. But he doesn't say that. What he says to the followers, he says, go back and tell John that the things you see are these. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Tell John that. So they go back and they go, John, I don't know, it's kind of a weird answer. But what he said was, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Does that mean anything to you? And John goes, yeah. That's all I need. You know why? Because John knows what you and I have forgotten. That that was a promise from the prophet Isaiah. You'll know I'm the Messiah because blind people see and deaf people hear and lame people walk. You'll know I'm him because of this. You see what Jesus drags John back to. Jesus drags John back in the middle of his doubt and his worry and his frustration and his disappointment and his, dis and his discouragement. He draws him back to the word of God. John kicks his feet up on his stone bed in the middle of Herod's prison and sleeps at peace. Why? Because he knows the word of God. You want to thrive and survive in this world, you must live word-saturated. If you're going to be a godly mom, a godly dad, if you're going to be a godly husband, a godly wife, if you're going to be a godly parent, if you're going to be a godly son or daughter, if you're going to be a godly friend, if you're going to be a godly church member, if you're going to be a godly deacon or pastor, if you're going to be a godly car salesman or lawyer, you must saturate your mind with the Word of God. You must read it. You must read it every day. You must breathe it in. 
You must read it regularly. You must have it in your speech. You must talk about it at your table. You must say it in your prayers. You must live word saturated. There's a whole lot of world that's coming at you. There's a whole lot of flesh to battle inside of you. And the Word of God is not incidental to you and I thriving and surviving. The Word of God is essential into you and I thriving and surviving. Can I contrast that with Herod for a second? Look at the text. The text says that Herod goes down and he hears John. He hears John gladly. He hears John regularly. He likes to listen to John. He observes many things, verse 20. And he even does some of the things that John told him to do. But you see the difference? This is what James talks about. The dangers of hearing the word only and deceiving yourself, thinking that the truth is in you because you heard the word no, 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 Christian, be a doer of the word also. Herod loves to hear the word, but Herod doesn't obey the word. He hears the word gladly. Herod comes in, he sits through John's entire sermon. He even adds a couple things to his life. But by the time he hits the prison steps, He's forgotten the word. He's turned away from it. And Herod's heart grows callous to God's word. Herod has grieved and quenched the Holy Spirit of God. He's blasphemed the Holy Spirit in rejecting God's word. Listen, this is a warning for us as Christians. We're sitting here on Sunday morning listening to God's word again. All Herod wanted was to hear Jesus. He was, he was enamored with Jesus. And he finally gets the chance in Luke chapter number 23. Herod drags Jesus in front of him. Herod says, I've been wanting to hear you for a long time. And in Luke chapter 23, the Bible says that Jesus refuses to speak to Herod. Does that surprise you? That Christ, the loving shepherd... Christ, the Savior of all. Christ, who's hours away from his death. Christ, who'll die on the cross and atone for sinners everywhere. Refuses to speak a word to Herod. It's as if he is telling us by way of Herod. Herod, you had your day. You had your opportunity. And today isn't the day. The text there reveals exactly what's going on in Herod's heart. Herod, when Jesus refuses to hear him, gets angry, gets mad, filled with rage, and turns Jesus over to be scourged back to Pilate and then crucified. Friends, I have to tell you this. There are no second chances after death. There's no possibility of finding some other way, some other means. All of us are one breath away from eternity. So when God speaks into your heart through his word, 
using all kinds of strange things and strange people to do so. It is incumbent upon you and me to respond immediately to the Word of God. You want to thrive and survive? Live word-saturated. You want to thrive and survive? Live tough-minded. You want to thrive and survive? Live for the glory of God. Let's bow together for prayer, shall we?